I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. They could elevate their brand of the Dodgers and their their stature within American sports, North American sports, really to another level. And perhaps even supplant a team like the Yankees as the marquee brand in the sport. Becoming the biggest team in baseball is a lot to put on one player's shoulders. But Shohei Otani has some broad shoulders. And also, the biggest contract in sports history. Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. In 1972, the Winnipeg Jets signed Bobby Hull to sports' first million-dollar contract. Now, Shohei Otani is resetting that bar again. 700 million smackaroos. So will anything slow down the sports money machine? Or will the dollars just keep getting bigger? Also today, plush toys. You know, stuffies, teddy bears. They're big sellers. Kids love them. But all those cuddly toys aren't just going to kids. Up first, Amazon and our shift to digital was supposed to spell kaput for the humble bookstore. But a funny thing happened on the way to obsolescence. One of the biggest books of the year was just released. And Tracy Johnson... Until you told me about it, I hadn't heard of it. Don't have a copy of Iron Flame, hey? (laughs) Well, I don't, but I read a review, and it's a sexy fantasy about telepathic dragons and their riders. And what is not to like about that, Paul Havershirt? Sounds (laughs) sexy and telepathic. It is, and Iron Flame is a hugely popular book this fall. It is flying off bookshelves really right across North America. And it is popular enough that a bookstore in Calgary held a midnight release party the day it came out and then opened their store the next day on what would normally be a day off for all of the people who wanted to buy a copy of it. Hi. How's it going? There was a steady stream of people coming into Slowburn Books to pick up their copies. The floor of the store was filled with bags of pre-orders, and it doesn't take much to fill up the floor of the store because it is tiny. I think if you stood in the middle and stretched out your arms, you could almost touch the bookshelves, which are packed with romance novels. And Paul, there are a lot of different kinds of romance novels these days. Shannon and Nicola McNaughton, who are the sisters who own the store, they walked me through some of them. So we carry everything from fantasy, contemporary, young adult, sports romance, dark romance, and also monster romance. Please define. (laughs) Monster romance is basically anyone that's not really human. (laughs) 
Yes. No one is human in it, or? Um, no, I would say at least one of the characters can be human, but at least one of them is definitely not human. <laughs> I don't think I should say, to be honest. <laughs> this is a family-friendly show. Monster romance is a thing, Paul. Sure, but, you know. Like, Beauty and the Beast at its heart is a monster romance. I feel like we get off track if we talked about that. Let's <laughs> let's talk about that later. What is interesting here, though, Tracy, among other things, is uh, it's just this is a bricks and mortar store and people are lined up. It's busy. Yeah. The bookstore is back, Paul. You know, over the past four years, around 30 new independent bookstores have opened in Canada. And Slowburn is one of them. It's just been open since February. Uh, according to the Canadian Independent Bookstore Association, there are many more bookstores opening now than there were in previous years. Well, this doesn't really seem to fit with the narrative that Amazon ebooks were going to, you know, spell the death of the bookstore. It's true. And, you know, so the Kindle came out in 2007. And at that time, no one really knew how much of the market it was going to gobble up and right off the top grabbed about 20% of the market, but then settled back down. And in the United States, Ebook sales are around 11% of the market. It's a little bit higher here in Canada. The most recent number we have, around 17%. So that's like the majority of people who are reading are still reading in traditional ways, right? With yeah. paper copies of books. Why did the e-reader not you know, mm. do what it was supposed to do? I think it is about the perpetual balance between digital and analog. Duncan Stewart is the head of research with Deloitte Canada, and he follows publishing. He said that a number of years ago, when ebooks were pretty new, he began to survey readers about how they felt about them. And he found that the biggest fans of e-readers were actually older readers. Does this have to do with font sizes? <laughs> I mean, being able to change the font size on an e-reader, it is, it is a nice thing as you get older, I will admit to that. And, but the other thing that Duncan found was that younger people were still into physical books. That to me was the tipping point, the side that young people loved print. And my hypothesis, and it's one that I will take to my grave, is if you are a three-year-old and your mom and your dad read a book to you every night and you grab that book as they go away and you clutch it to your little three-year-old chest like it's a teddy bear and you fall asleep sucking on it, you are going to like print books for the rest of your life. Our kids have a pretty chewed up copy of Goodnight Moon. Yeah, exactly. And I spoke to a number of people at the bookstore when I was there, and I asked them how they like to read. And I, we were at a bookstore, so of course they're going to be a little biased towards books. But most of them did have an e-reader. Some of them also listened to audiobooks, but they all liked having physical books on their shelves, which did not surprise Nicola McNaughton. I'm not sure if this is just specific to romance readers in particular, but it is definitely very a popular trend to, you know, read on a Kindle, read on an e-reader, and then buy the physical copy as the thing that goes on your bookshelf as kind of almost that physical um, reward. So there's something about owning a book you love, like being able to touch it and, and take it off the shelf. Absolutely. But there's also something else going on in the book business. Our reading habits have changed over the past few years. How? 
Well, there's a reason that I went to Slow Burn, which only sells romance. Genre fiction has become very, very popular. Young adult book sales have jumped 60% in the past four years. Sci-fi and fantasy are doing well. Cozy mysteries are doing well. Sales of romance novels the first six months of this year were up 35% in Canada, and that's after a very strong 2022. And Nicola McNaughton has a theory about that. During COVID, it was like escape. It was an escape because, like, you know, times are very tough. Romance in particular is a very, for me, a safe genre because there's always going to be a happily ever after. It doesn't matter the torture that you put me through throughout the book because I know that the characters at the end will be together. And that, to me, feels comforting. And another thing that's helping book sales is TikTok. Why TikTok? It is a huge influence. Book talk can send an author flying up the bestseller list. If you've heard of Colleen Hoover, she had six of the top 10 bestsellers last year because of young women on TikTok pushing her books. And this marketing is just happening organically. It's mm-hmm. because fans like it. You know, if I'm the publishing industry, which I'm not, but if I were, I would be happy to see that. And I would be happy to see these kinds of book sales. Absolutely. So it starts on TikTok and then it moves into the physical world because it did not take long until bricks and mortar bookstores had and still have huge Colleen Hoover displays. You cannot go into an Indigo without seeing her books everywhere. Well, what about the big box stores like the Indigos of the world? We know that Indigo has been struggling and it is now trying to turn things around and it is doing that by selling more books and fewer candles. Well, when you go in there, you do see like a lot of water bottles and yoga mats and and throw pillows. You're kind of like, where are the books? Heather Reisman, uh, who recently returned as the CEO, said that she is changing the product mix. Last year, it was almost 50-50 books versus non-books. And the company is switching it up to be 70% books. And you can already see that if you go into an Indigo. A lot of the lifestyle stuff is on sale now. And Indigo is hoping that that shift back to the paper book is going to turn its fortunes. And one of the reasons it thinks so is that Waterstones in the UK made this switch and turned things around. And now Barnes & Noble in the United States is doing the same thing. So people want to buy books and, hey, shockingly, <laughs> they want to do it in bookstores. Exactly, which is what independent bookstores already know. You know, it feels like some of our listeners might be thinking right now, ah, should I open a bookstore? Yeah, I worked at an independent bookstore in my 20s and I loved it. And I still think about it sometimes. You're feeling, you sound just a bit too wistful there, Trace. (laughs) Oh, good days, man. And, you know, Duncan Stewart, who again follows the book business, he says he thinks the future is bright for independence. Independent bookstores are now seeing that young people are coming in, they can invest, they can invest in higher book stocks, wider selection, nicer stores, new carpeting, new shelves, all of that good stuff that people come to bookstores for and stay for, they can now invest in it because it no longer looks like they're doomed. Not doomed. Long live the bookstore. After 15 years of drama and upheaval and near disaster, Paul, they're going to get there happily ever after. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Paul. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. 
politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you if you're young at heart. Frank Sinatra sang that in 1955. You know who really likes the idea of staying young at heart? Toy makers. Their bread and butter is selling stuff to kids, but that also leaves out all kinds of potential customers. So now, our producer Jennifer Keen finds, toy companies are figuring out how to get adults to spend on themselves. Sam Carey opened her toy store, Playful Minds, more than 20 years ago in Toronto. And for the last five, she's had the same thing hanging in the window. Giant, stuffed vegetables called squishables. They're just big, lovey, huggy stuffies. The display was a huge hit during the pandemic when stores were locked and people were kind of bored. People just loved them. And people would take walks with their children and ask what character they were or what would they want to be. So it was really a wonderful kind of thing. And really, five years later, it's still there. Now, Sam has always sold stuffed toys, but... 15 years ago, I mean, I used to have such a small selection, and it wasn't just a quantity and a quality out there either. And uh, it's just now everyone, all of my suppliers carry some version, like some stuffies. Every one of them. Between 2019 and 2022, the sale of toys like board games and puzzles rose by 30%. But the sale of plush toys rose by more than twice that much. Back at it again with another impulsive Squishmallow buy. So I got this off of a girl off Poshmark. Um, basically because a big I reason for that was adults buying stuffies for themselves. They're known as the kiddled market. Adults who like kid stuff. At least I was able to pay under 100 for her. I know the retail price is $14.99, but I missed out. I was in Jessica Wong got big into Squishmallows last year. It kind of all started with uh, one individual toy that I got uh, from my mom. She, she got me one from Costco, and it was this huge whale. Next thing she knew, she was hunting everywhere for those velvety squishies. She started posting her finds on TikTok and Instagram, and her algorithm quickly filled up with others doing the same thing. And then little by little, you don't really realize it, but then um, all of a sudden your, your, your living room is filled with all these individual um, kind of pillow, soft pillowy looking soft toys. Jessica has now bought more than 100 Squishmallows. It's a nice break from her work as a real estate lawyer. For a lot of people, if you have like a really stressful job at the end of the day, if there's just some, if you go home and there's just something really funny and cute looking, it's kind of like a stress relief as well. So I guess that like ties into it as well. Some brands like Huggimals lean into that idea even marketing their weighted stuffed toys as therapy. That's no surprise to Aradna Krishna, who studies sensory marketing at Michigan Ross University. She says technology has changed childhood play. 
right from a very young age, I think there's much less social interaction and there's much more interaction with devices. Plush toys are an antidote to the digital world. I mean, the human body just craves touch for warmth and comfort from, you know, the, the time we are born. So it's evolutionary in nature. Sometimes you just need to hug a giant, squishable broccoli. Sam Carey still has those squishables in the window of her store. And even with other toy sales dipping, the sales of stuffed toys are still going strong. I have so many conversations with parents coming in and the children, all I want is stuffies and appearance, but you can't have anymore. And I'm like, let them have it. They'll have it forever. They'll take it off to university with them. For The Cost of Living, I'm Jennifer Keene. How good is Shohei Otani at baseball? He's the best hitter in the league, and he might be the best pitcher. This is bigger-than-life Babe Ruth kind of stuff. Now, for a hot second, it looked like he'd play in Toronto. But he signed with the LA Dodgers for $700 million. It's a weird deal. He's deferring most of the money for 10 years, so he'll get paid after he's done playing. In today's dollars, once you adjust for inflation, the deal is worth more like $460 million. That's still nearly half a billion dollars and the biggest contract in baseball. Wayne Gretzky made $48 million in his whole career. Michael Jordan, $93 million. So how can half a billion dollars, or any big sports deal these days, make financial sense? Vince Gennaro is a professor at NYU's Preston Robert Tisch Institute for Global Sport and the author of Diamond Dollars, The Economics of Winning in Baseball. Hello. Well, hello. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, thanks for being here, Vince. If we look at the business side of a $700 million contract, what are the Dodgers thinking here? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. It's a question that a lot of people are asking. I think the Dodgers are thinking about this on a couple of different levels. One is that um, they can improve their performance on the field radically with his talent. He will be this incredible two-way player that we've never seen before, someone who's pitching at an elite level and probably even more so one of the best hitters in the game uh, both at the same, while he's doing it at the same time. And if they can improve themselves on the field, um, they could elevate their brand of the Dodgers and their their stature within American sports and North American sports really to another level that it's on now. And perhaps even supplant a team like the Yankees as the marquee brand in the sport. You know, you say elevate the brand and we're talking about, about money here. Is, is Otani really worth it? You know, first of all, there's, you know, you already dispelled in your open here the myth about the 700 million. It's really 
a $460 million deal paid over 10 years, or I should say the equivalent of that, because he's deferring, uh, you know, 97% of this till he retires. Um, and, and I think his talent warrants some of that. And, and also, I, I think the fact that uh, they can monetize his off-the-field popularity in their local market, at least the Dodgers, and it's a big local market, that's going to help them pay this back as well. So, yes, I think this is a uh, hard to believe I'm using these words, but a reasonable deal <laughs> for almost half a bill. Uh, that's right. Can, can you explain the deal structure a little bit more like why the deferred money? Yeah. So he's getting um, 700 million is spread this way. Two million per year for the ten years that he's playing, twenty twenty four to twenty thirty three, that he's under contract. Sixty eight million dollars a year, beginning in twenty thirty four, for ten years through twenty forty three. Now, what that does is it gets you to a, a number in actual U.S. dollars of seven hundred million. However. Um, that's not really the value of the deal. We've got to consider the time value of money, of course. So if you look at if he was paid exactly that amount evenly spread over the time of his uh, of his playing time, it would be, as you said in your open, $46 million a year for 10 years. Um, so the structure is, uh, to say it's unusual is an understatement. It's I've never seen anything like it or heard of anything like it. Um, some people suspect that uh, part of what he's doing is deferring the $68 million per year until he's no longer a resident of the state of California, which, by the way, will have a state income tax next year that is, I believe, going to cross over the 14% line. So uh, if that's true, we're talking about a $9.5 million per year savings just in the tax from 2034 to 2043. Now, I think there's an argument there that he's earning all this money as an employee and resident of the state of California. And I'm not so sure he is off the tax hook. The other thing is, um, Otani is going to make, apparently he made in the neighborhood of 40 to $50 million in endorsements last year. So you can understand why he doesn't need the cash flow from this deal during his playing days. So that's a little bit about the, uh, the structure of the deal. How can the Dodgers leverage Otani and this $700 million deal, or whatever the final number is, to, to make money for the club, to make him profitable? Well, uh, number one, there's signage that they can sell in stadium and also digitally uh, on their broadcast to Japanese uh, sponsors. That will be, you know, not trivial. I mean, I don't know how much dollars that will generate, but it will certainly generate some. Um, they certainly have pricing power on their ticket prices. Uh, I don't think there's any reason why they couldn't raise them. Now, that's a slippery slope. We'll have to see how far they want to go. And unlike a lot of other teams, though, they don't have capacity because they they were selling out, essentially, for the whole season last year. So some of the other teams, like, for instance, the San Francisco Giants, could have used this to increase attendance. Not the case with the Dodgers. And then, of course, another area is the merchandise. Uh, and ex expect them to uh, load up on all sorts of Otani merchandise, not just the Otani jersey with his number on the back and name, but even go beyond that and see what they can sell. Now, it's important to note what they sell in their local market is their revenue. What they sell outside of their local market, whether it's in Chicago or Tokyo, that gets pooled with all 30 teams. And so they get one thirtieth of that revenue with Otani's name on it. 
if we look at the money that is now involved in pro sports in general, if you think back, you know, decades, like Gordie Howe, he lived in a pretty normal house in Detroit. Larry Bird, he famously redid his his mother's driveway and and hurt his back. I mean, he's kind of regular dudes doing regular things. When did sports contracts start to become so detached from the way a regular person could think about finances? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I I think, you know, in baseball, the seed was planted in the mid-70s with free agency, but really it never got anywhere near the level it is now until probably the early 2000s. And I think of the, you know, the mega contract of, of Alex Rodriguez or even Manny Ramirez, where they they broke that $20 million a year barrier. And from there, it's been smooth sailing for players. Um, so I think that's, you know, in, in baseball, that's certainly what had happened. In other sports, the timeline is is not that different than that. I think what we've seen in global soccer or football, as they call it, uh, is another level as well with with the stars, uh, Messi and Neymar and, and Ronaldo and so forth, who are truly on a global stage. So I do think globalization has had a bit of an impact on this as well because it's created awareness across so many more eyeballs than, than our more parochial sports of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. You know, and it's it's not just the contract values. It's not just not seven hundred million dollars for Otani. You've got franchise values that keep going up. You look yeah. at you look at Mark Cuban, right? He bought the Dallas Mavericks for two hundred and thirty five million. That was only like twenty three years ago. A couple weeks ago, he sold the team for three and a half billion. So when you think about these kinds of numbers, and they just keep going up and up and up, do you, do you see any end in sight to this? You know, um, sure. I mean, I, I I don't know when and where, but but it just can't keep going up for uh, forever, or else there will be at some point some form of a bubble. On the positive side, live sports has continued to fuel some of the growth in revenues and the growth in franchise values, the live sports popularity. On the flip side of it, it is the whole distribution method is being disrupted with cable uh, becoming less and less popular over time. And so we're at an inflection point, how it all shakes out, it's hard to say. Instead of everybody paying a little bit for for channels they don't watch, the people who, you won't have to do that anymore, but you're also gonna have to pay full freight for the, for the shows on the networks or channels you do wanna watch with streaming. So there's there's both positives and negatives. And in the end, I think we'll see it shake out with a little less total revenue in, in, in media dollars, that is, for, for live sports, but it will still be significant and probably at least at the level it is now. Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying if, if we start thinking about, well, when does sort of peak sports revenue happen, that's very much tied to these TV rights. But if you step back and think about these kinds of huge deals, hundreds of millions of dollars, what does that mean for someone going to a game for ticket prices and even the ability of, of a fan to connect to, to the players. Yeah, I, I, I do question that. I mean, uh, I don't want to be a, a romanticist about the good old days, but I, I do think there's a risk of pricing the market out and alienating fans because 
you know, it just becomes such an elitist kind of a thing. Um, on the other hand, you know, maybe we don't focus as much when Nicole Kidman does a movie, she gets, you know, what is it, 20 million or whatever. Yet we don't seem to think of it the same way. And I'm not sure why. Maybe because it's a one-shot thing. Whenever we see a movie, we see it once and we move on. Rather than looking at your athletes day in and day out on the field, toiling for their $25 million per year. So I, I do think that you run the risk um, from a from a number of angles to, to alienate fans. But boy, sports are such a compelling entertainment vehicle uh, and they're so engaging and, and so it's, and they build community. So there's so much else there too. Yeah. They might be playing a kid's game, but you know, we still watch. That's right. Well, thanks Vince. Well, a pleasure. Vince Gennaro is a professor at NYU and the author of Diamond Dollars, The Economics of Winning in Baseball. That's the show. The Cost of Living is based in Calgary. The show is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene, with help from Caroline, the elf on the shelf, Ferris. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Havertrude. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.